Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Midland, Texas is where hopes and dreams come true. David Arrington would know. He's an independent oil man and something of a legend in the Permian. A while back, he hired an architect to design the biggest house in Midland, which clocks in at some 10,000 square feet. That's where he stores his antique cars and most of his Ansel Adams photography collection. He's actually the largest private collector of Ansel Adams in the country. The house also has a few unusual amenities. Well, it's it's a country French house. Um, it's pretty big. It's four stories. It has a slide in it, so it's got this slide like you have at McDonald's, but it's the, it's you know like a little tube and it goes through the attic and then comes out underneath the stairs in the coat closet. The slide is like something straight out of a movie, like Richie Rich or Blank Check, a rich kid's fantasy come to life. At 42 feet tall, it starts on the fourth floor and spirals down to the first. Everybody asked me if I built that for the kids, and I was like, well, no, I built it for me, but they're more than welcome to use it. (laughs) Wildcatting has always been a magnet for eccentric personalities, and David Arrington is one of the most flamboyant oilmen Midland has ever seen. Every year on Easter morning, he dons a bunny suit and drives around town in his red 1964 Mustang, stopping at his friends' houses to deliver candy to their kids. He actually stole the idea from a friend. I kind of improved on it a little bit. Um, I got a really cool Easter bunny suit. His was a little scary, I, I might add. Mine was a really kind of friendly, fluffy one. I had this 1964 and a half convertible Mustang. And so the Easter Bunny would get up before dawn, and the the families, he'd probably see 10 or 20 families, and and they knew he was coming. So he would come and he'd have gifts and everything. He'd he'd knock on their door and the kids would be there and the mom and dad would be there and we'd take pictures and all that. And, and, uh, um, you know, and he'd do that for a couple hours then to come home, change, you know, go to church. Like the slide in his house, Arrington's Easter Bunny visits aren't just for kids. I remember there's this one bank, and they were in a conference meeting, and, and they wouldn't they wouldn't let the Easter Bunny in, and so but the Easter Bunny pushed through and and uh, opened the doors to everybody's chagrin, and there's this one guy who was kind of the fuddy-duddy, and he never smiled, and the Easter Bunny went and sat in his lap, and everybody in the conference room fell on the floor laughing. That that's one of my better memories of the Easter Bunny. I'm not sure that guy knows who that was or if I'm ever going to confess to it. But for Arrington and others in the oil industry, it wasn't always like this. When Arrington first showed up in Midland, the Permian was in the midst of what many consider to be the worst bust of all time. A bust so bad that many of the richest folks in town lost almost everything overnight. The financial fallout routinely made national headlines. There have been oil busts before, but never anything like this. 
While American consumers are enjoying the benefits of oversupply and lower prices, the oil business in this country is hurting. Suddenly, the only people in Houston making money were bankruptcy lawyers. Whole buildings are unoccupied. The state's boom has gone bust. I'm Christian Wallace, and this is Boomtown, a podcast about the ordinary people behind the historic oil boom that's playing out in the Permian Basin right now. Last week, we explored the rise of the Permian, how the people in that dusty, desolate patch of West Texas came to shape American politics, culture, and the economy. This week, we explore the region's biggest bust and take a look at how we went from utter devastation to the biggest oil boom Texas has ever seen. This is episode three, Dust to Dust. The Permian Basin has always been vulnerable to the boom and bust cycles of the oil industry. But in the early 80s, times were good, really good. Oil prices had shot up in the late 70s, and Midland, the financial capital of the Permian, quickly became one of the richest cities per capita in the country. There was a river of money flowing through town and plenty of folks who were dying to flaunt it. High-end department stores bought space at the mall and a Rolls-Royce dealership opened near the airport. In 1982, eight Midland oil men were included in the very first Forbes 400 list of richest Americans, which is pretty incredible given the fact that the town's population was only 70,000 at the time. But soon after that issue of Forbes hit newsstands, the high times came to a screeching halt. Saudis get restless and they decide, hey, we don't want other people taking our market share. This is Dr. Diana Hinton, the Midland-based historian you probably remember from the last episode. Dr. Hinton says that in the early 80s, a sudden influx of oil from new reserves around the world, including Mexico and the North Sea, began to enter the market. This glut threatened to disrupt OPEC's grip on the oil economy. The OPEC countries responded by ramping up their own production. There's more and more Saudi oil on the market. The market rapidly gets overloaded. OPEC hoped that by flooding the market, it would drive the price of oil down and knock other global competitors out of the oil business. So, in other words, the Saudis say, We're going to allow our oil to become cheaper than other people's by giving rebates on what people buy from us. It works. The price of oil did plummet. As a result, the previously high-flying Midland was on the brink of collapse. On October 14, 1983, Midland's first national bank, which had been dishing out loans to oilmen like candy on Halloween, shut its doors. It was the second largest independent bank failure in the country. The Rolls-Royce dealership closed down too. There were so many oil companies that went out of business, the Midland's downtown buildings were said to be see-through. A common joke in the 80s was, what do you call a geologist in Midland? Hey, waiter. When things began to turn down, there were any number of jokes about that situation. The first one to surface was, when you owe your banker $100,000, you stay awake at night. When you owe your banker a million dollars, your banker stays awake at night. The banks would foreclose on drilling companies and repossess the equipment. But with no holes to drill, all those expensive rigs were worthless. And as more banks folded and were taken over by the FDIC, another joke cropped up. 
Who's the biggest drilling company in Texas? The FDIC. Dr. Hinton remembers having to keep cash on hand as one bank after another was shut down. You go down to the bank and you get enough money to last you five days or a week. You put it in another bank that isn't going belly up yet. And then when your bank is shut down so the FDIC can take over, um, you have money to get along until the FDIC can allow you access to the money you had in bank number one. We did this two or three times. Some folks in the Permian turned to a higher source. The bumper sticker appeared on cars. Please God, please let there be another oil boom. I promise I won't piss everything away this time. That was the way it was. And a lot of people had to find jobs outside the industry. Many more people just tried to find jobs in Houston, um, moved to Dallas, moved to anywhere. A few old men managed to scrape a living together and make it work. One of those was David Arrington. Arrington was an energetic, sandy-haired, former high school cheerleader from Dallas. He was a student at Texas Tech University when the bust first hit the Permian. But the region's sudden dire straits only amplified his fascination with the oil business. He'd seen the movie Giant and was enthralled by Jet Rink, the swaggering wildcatter played by James Dean. Me, I'm gonna have more money than you ever thought of having. Why, that's wonderful, Jim. Arrington was determined to make his way into the industry. His senior year at Tech, he applied to dozens of oil companies. But I had 27 job interviews, and I had 28 rejections. Uh, I got two rejection letters from Getty Oil. Uh, it's like, we really don't want you, so we're going to send you two rejection letters. He finally managed to snag a job as a rookie landman for a tiny oil company. He arrived in Midland in the summer of 1984, right about the time the crisis reached its apex. Yes, in 1984, it was bad. Um, the First National Bank had, had failed a few years earlier. Um, I always kind of joked that people loved me coming to town, and it was a little unusual because I didn't know anybody. And I figured out real quick, I had the only U-Haul that was coming in, and they wanted it to, to, so they could leave. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Arrington began spending his spare time in Midland's subsurface library, researching oil prospects. That's where he found some promising acreage near the tiny town of Kermit, about an hour west of Midland. And I put together my own prospect. Now, I'm not a geologist, but, but I just read the books, talked to the geology guys. Not that it's that easy, because it's not. Um, but I just used a little common sense 
and I uh, put together a prospect over south of Kermit, and then I tried to sell the deal. An acquaintance told him how to go about securing an investment. He explained to me about a third for a quarter, and uh, which means you get three people to put up a third of the cost of drilling a well, and then they each get you know a quarter of it, and, and I get a free quarter for putting together the idea. Of course, nobody was buying any deals. I always joke that I was turned down so many times, I felt like a bedspread. He eventually knocked on enough doors to line up the investors he needed to move forward on the deal. And I remember I called mom and dad that I sold the deal, I was so excited. Then on the way out of town, because I was actually living in Lubbock and Midland at the time, so I was driving out of town, and I, it was kind of nighttime and I, and I hadn't had dinner. So I stopped by the church's fried chicken that's still here on Big Spring Street, and there's a homeless man there, and I, uh, uh, he, he's begging. And so I said, well, I won't give you money, but I'll, I'll give you dinner. So I had my first celebratory uh, dinner for my first old deal I ever saw with a homeless man at church's fried chicken there on Big Springs. One of my, one of my good memories. From there, he contracted with another company to drill a well. To the surprise of many, he actually struck oil. Arrington stood by the well, leaped into the air, shouted, and did a herky, the classic cheerleader move you've probably seen at every high school football game. Arrington soon became Midland's boy wonder, but times were still hard, even for him. He reinvested all of his money back into drilling new wells and buying up more leases. Uh, unfortunately, they weren't all successful. So, but you just hope that the good ones outweigh the bad ones. And uh, so, you know, they don't call me dry hole day for nothing. So I, I've drilled my share of dry holes. Um, you know, and, and I'm always asked about that. My wife's always kind of comments on that. You know, I, I don't like dry holes, but, but they sure don't devastate me and it's not the end of the world and, and they don't really get me down. You just have to just brush yourself off and keep on going because that's kind of part of it. So if a, if, if a dry hole gets you down, you're in the wrong business. In the mid-80s, another devastating bust ravaged the Permian. This time around, Arrington almost lost his shirt. So every bust is different, and it's different for different reasons, and they've always been that way. The one in 88 uh, was price. You know, that bust, the price all got down to like you know, $8.75. So, so nothing was economic to go drill. Well, if I'm not going to go out and, you know, be able to go drill any wells, well, the drilling company can't hire anybody because their drilling rig's not running. All the buildings that, that these different companies are renting, you know, all of a sudden they can't pay the rent anymore. So now the land, I mean, it just, it just really has a domino effect. Somehow, Arrington managed to hang on. You know, it was kind of scary. I remember at that time, I don't know how many employees I had. I probably had four or five employees. And I do remember specifically, every morning, it was must have been a psychological deal, but every morning when I would grab the handle for the shower, because I always take a shower in the morning, when I grabbed the handle, I would feel like throwing up every morning because I was like, how am I going to make payroll? How, how am I? These people are counting on me. You know, golly, it was sure a lot of pressure for a young man. While Arrington eked out a living for himself and a small company, those around him weren't so lucky. Here's Dr. Hinton again. I had never seen anything like this. During the boom, people had put in a new country club, big golf course, and there were expensive homes out there. 
They were multi-story, and you drove up in that area, and on nearly every block, there would be a foreclosure sign, for sale, foreclosure, for sale, foreclosure, for sale, foreclosure. But the thing that sticks in my mind most is when we went up to a new shopping center on North Big Spring. It was called Mission Square in 1987 in March, and the tumbleweeds were up to the eaves. Now, I had never seen anything like that before in my life. Well, for one thing, I had never seen that many tumbleweeds in one place in my life, but it was absolutely unbelievable. This is the Permian Basin I grew up in. I never knew the good old days of gushers and extravagant wealth. I was a child of the bust. My dad was born in 1964 and grew up on a small ranch near Andrews. Like many of his peers, he started working in the oil field while he was still in high school. But after he graduated, the bust of 1984 forced him to look elsewhere for work. He went west to Arizona and later to California, drawing a paycheck by working on construction sites. But months after I was born in 1988, my parents returned to Andrews. My dad took a job with the city, one of the few employers in town with steady work. As I grew up in Andrews, the oil fields that surround the town became an extension of my playgrounds. My friends and I would shoot Coke bottles in those fields. We dug elaborate trenches between the mesquite trees and we threw dirt clods at rattlesnakes. We rode our bikes for hours down dusty lease roads and ate our sandwiches in the shade of fiberglass oil tanks. My elementary school and other schools in Andrews were named after the various rock formations that had blessed the town with crude. During the summer, we watched Midland's minor league baseball team. Their mascot was the Rockhounds, West Texas slang for the geologists who hunt for crude. When I was a kid, people were more likely to leave Andrews than to move in. The few visitors who came to town wrinkled their noses at the sour stench of gas. But the smell really didn't offend my nose. I had grown accustomed to it and when there was a strong whiff of it on the wind, I'd just mimic the elders and take an exaggerated sniff. Smells like money. In high school, we heard that city kids had house parties. We did things a little differently. We had pump jack parties. On a Friday night, someone would say, meet me after the game at the Bush Machine, and everyone knew exactly which pump jack they were talking about. On one of these weekend nights, a buddy of mine decided to ride the bush machine. He straddled the pump jack like it was a bucking bull, and like a real bull, the pump jack bucked him off. He sprained his wrist pretty bad from the fall, but most nights passed without incident. Just a few bored teenagers, our trucks parked in a circle around a pump jack, drinking beer we had stolen from ice chests left in the beds of company trucks, listening to George Strait or Tom Petty, smoking Marlboro 27s and talking about what we were going to do when we left this town. Of course, back when I was still a kid, I had no notion of how geopolitics affected the fortunes of Andrews, how the economic principles of supply and demand could make it harder for a local family to put food on the table. But my friends and I got used to hearing the adults discuss the price of West Texas crude, the way folks in other places talk about the weather. It didn't take long for us to understand what those figures meant. We grew up on stories about former boom times 
and heard plenty of horror tales about previous busts, stories of men killing themselves in the patch after losing everything. There's one story that stuck with me. A friend's dad told us that he once drove to a drilling location in a remote part of the patch. When he pulled up, a white company truck was parked there. He noticed a hose running from the exhaust pipe into the cab. There was a man slumped over in the driver's seat. The truck speakers were still blasting Aerosmith's Dream On. The dead man had put the song on repeat before the fumes made him pass out. Throughout the 90s, Midland's independent oil companies had just plotted along, many of them getting by on the oil coming up from wells they'd already drilled. By 1999, most of the major companies like Exxon and Gulf had vacated their West Texas offices. They'd given up on the Permian. Just 43 rigs were left working across the region. Even David Arrington decided to sell most of his Permian properties. But by the mid-2000s, there was a major paradigm shift in the industry. Ever heard of fracking? Well, it all started with a quiet, unassuming Texas oil man named George Mitchell. George Mitchell didn't invent hydraulic fracturing or fracking. It was first attempted in the late 40s. The Permian Basin Petroleum Museum in Midland is a multi-million dollar ode to the history of the Texas oil business. It even has its own Hall of Fame a place to enshrine those who've made the most profound contributions to the oil and gas industry. I've spent a good deal of time at the museum, and I've often passed the portrait of George Mitchell. We'll talk about Mitchell more in a later episode, but for now, here's the most important thing to know about him. Combined with horizontal drilling, George Mitchell's fracturing technique caused a new boom in the industry and has been called this century's biggest and most important energy innovation. Which is quite a claim. But in the annals of famous oil men, George Mitchell doesn't quite fit the stereotype. Yeah, I don't actually know where he is physically in the Hall of Fame, um, but I would imagine he's kind of off, you know, in a quiet corner somewhere, right? I mean, that's author Lauren Steffi, who recently published a biography of Mitchell. By the way, Lauren was joking. Mitchell's legacy is presented center stage at the Petroleum Museum, right alongside the other classic, boisterous Texas oil men. At least, at least figuratively speaking, you know, he didn't have this kind of larger-than-life personality. He, he wasn't Glenn McCarthy. He wasn't Oscar Wyatt or, or Boone Pickens or, you know, any of these guys. Um, he didn't have that kind of swaggering image, you know, big hats, big boots, you know, money flying out the window as you drive down the road. That wasn't him at all. But what Mitchell lacked in swagger, he made up for in vision. Mitchell is often called the father of fracking. You know, fracking was basically a process of just cracking open rock to see if you could get more oil or gas out of it. I'm sure you've heard the term thrown around, but fracking differs from conventional drilling in a couple of key ways. You just briefly describe that process. I will. I will do so with a disclaimer that I am. I am not a petroleum engineer or a geologist, so I will tell you my understanding of it. And you know, from interviewing those people. But uh, basically, you know, with a conventional well, you you drill, uh, you know, vertically down into a reservoir, which is sort of like puncturing a an underground balloon almost, um, and and oil. The pressure forces the oil out. With fracking, you're trying to open up shale formations, which are it's kind of like drilling into a blackboard. So it's very dense rock. And once you drill the hole, then you inject water, sand, and, and various chemicals uh, into the wellbore. And, and that then 
causes tiny fractures to occur in the shale. The water shoots into those fractures. The sand, the grains of sand actually prop them open. That's how small they are. Mm -hmm. um, and oil and gas is able to, to come out. Right. One, one thing I hear repeated out in West Texas a lot is the concrete in your driveway is, is more porous than what we're getting oil out of these days. Fracking itself wasn't new technology. It had been used in some primitive capacities all the way back to the late 1800s. But George Mitchell believed that with fracking, you could unlock those stingy shell formations. Beginning in 1981, Mitchell's company, Mitchell Energy, began experimenting with fracking formulas in the Barnett Shell, which is a natural gas-producing region west of Fort Worth. At the time, a lot of the folks in the industry thought he was crazy. And, you know, there were a lot of skeptics even within the company that just didn't think it was going to work. But they, they kept at it because Mitchell Energy was a unique company. It was publicly traded, but George Mitchell had uh, basically overriding voting stock. So he had the final say on everything that happened. You know, most public companies would have to, you know, keep their shareholders happy. But in his case, if you bought a, a commonly traded share of Mitchell Energy, you were basically buying into George's vision and, and you better mm -hmm. like it because, you know, he wasn't going to waver. And so he was determined to keep this going because he felt like if we can find gas where we already have all this infrastructure, then our problems are solved, right? We can keep this whole thing going. For a long time, it looked like Mitchell's doubters were right. Years passed without promising results. It really took, like I said, a lot of trial and error, and the company had almost given up, actually. The company was going through tough times. They had layoffs. The pressure on Mitchell was mounting. There was a big conflict within the company by that point to, that they wanted to just shut down the whole project because it was just a waste of money. Engineers in Mitchell's company dreaded getting stuck on the fracking project. They called it Mitchell's Siberia. But one of the engineers, a soft-spoken 31-year-old named Nick Steinsberger, decided to make the best of it. Up to that point, Mitchell Energy had been using an expensive gel to blast into the shell along with sand. But Steinsberger started questioning the basic ingredients. That's when he happened to attend a Texas Rangers baseball game with a few friends from the industry. And they told him, oh yeah, they had done this uh, fracking job in East Texas where they use water. Uh, instead of gels. It's like, well, that's kind of crazy. Water's not supposed to work because it won't hold the sand in place. And they're like, yeah, well, it, it, it worked. Steinsberger convinced Mitchell Energy to let him try something new. On three wells, he'd use a water-based concoction instead of gel. All three wells were failures. Um, but he started thinking about it, and he, he realized, you know, what if you tweak the recipe? What if you don't put all the sand in at once? What if you, you know? And so he convinced them to give him three more. And they basically said, okay, but, but this is it. It was a true Hail Mary. And so he tried the, the, the last three, and, and one of them uh, just was off the charts. So they realized they had something. After almost 20 years of trying and failing, Mitchell's project finally paid off. And it paid off in a very big way. In 2001, Mitchell sold his company to Devon Energy for $3.1 billion. Soon, other companies were applying the same fracking techniques to wells in the Permian Basin. We, we always knew there was oil and gas in shale, but nobody knew how to get it out. And so the fact that it was there didn't matter. You had to sort of wait for it to migrate into softer, more porous rock like limestone. And that took, you know, 
thousands of years. So uh, once once it played out, it was played out. And everybody be, was thinking in the mid-2000s, you know, by 2007 or so, well, the Permian is pretty much done. I mean, we've, we've taken all we can from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fracking enabled uh, companies to go in and find a whole new level of reserves that, that are even bigger than what was there before. So it's really unbelievable. And it's really that. It's the innovation of fracking combined with horizontal drilling, of course, which is what enables shale to become commercially viable. Horizontal drilling was yet another game changer on the hills of the fracking innovation. Lauren explains it like this. Think of the oil producing rock formations underground as a form of layer cake. You actually drill down and you find that layer of frosting and then you angle the drill bit and you just go along it. As you drill horizontally into that layer of frosting, you can now suck the frosting from the entire layer. Add this technique to fracking and you get more oil, a lot more oil. It just so happened that, at the time, oil prices were high. And remember, it's 2008 by now. The financial crisis was in full swing, which meant that interest rates had been pushed historically low. Oil companies could suddenly afford to borrow tons of money to try out these new fracking and drilling techniques. The shell boom was on. In 2012, stories of the boom reached me while I was attending grad school in Ireland. I had racked up some student debt while abroad, so I decided to return home and earn some money in the patch. I spent 2013 working for a small independent oil company in Andrews. My duties included hauling parts to far-flung locations and roughnecking on a workover rig. If you don't know what a workover rig is, don't worry, we'll get into that in the next episode. But by the end of that year, I'd made a pretty good dent in my student loans. But after a few close calls on the rig and too many 80-hour work weeks out in the elements, I decided to retire from the oil patch. It turned out to be a good time to get out of the oil industry. OPEC responded to the U.S. shell boom much like they had responded in the 80s by flooding the market with Middle Eastern oil. In January 2015, the price of West Texas crude sank to less than half of what it had been a year before. Purse strings across West Texas tightened, and by December 2016, more than 100 American oil and gas companies, almost half of them based in Texas, had filed for bankruptcy. Some workers who had come to the region seeking their fortune abandoned their vehicles at the Midland Airport before they boarded their flights back home. It seemed as if the Permian Basin had finally seen its last big hurrah. Then something happened that had never been seen in the region's long history of booms and busts. Despite the low price of oil, drilling in the Permian began to pick back up. For one thing, fracking and horizontal drilling became even more efficient. In fact, some estimate that oil could drop to as low as $33 per barrel and sinking new wells in certain parts of the Permian would still be profitable, a scenario that would have been pretty much unimaginable just a few years ago. Another key factor was the lifting of a 40-year embargo on crude oil exports. The order was signed by President Obama in December 2015. Remember this clip from episode one? You know, that whole suddenly America's like the biggest oil producer. Uh, That was me, people. I just want you to. So just say thank you, please. Permian production has since rocketed from 2 million barrels a day in 2016 to more than 4.5 million barrels per day this November. Over the next four years, industry experts expect the output to double again. 
you know, we're producing more oil than, than Saudi Arabia now. I mean, who would have thought that was possible, yeah. especially in an area where we've been producing since, you know, what, the 1930s? I mean, right. um, uh, you know, everybody kind of thought that, that the Permian was done, and now it's back bigger than ever. The Permian now has a legitimate claim to being the world's most productive oil field. Even industry experts such as Dr. Hinton are stunned by the magnitude of this boom. It really is true. The United States is now a bigger producer of oil and gas than any other country in the world. Our energy future changed 180 degrees in the last two decades. We're in the position of actually being the global swing producer. We're actually in a position of doing what the Saudis have been able to do for a half century. Last November marked the first time in 75 years that the country exported more crude oil and other petroleum liquids than it imported, a milestone that's been lauded by officials across the country as an important step toward energy independence. Here's David Arrington. America has been so successful, and particularly here in the Permian Basin, we've been so successful and our wells are so good that we've actually rocked the world economy. One windy day last April, Vice President Mike Pence toured a drilling rig outside of Midland. With an American flag whipping in the wind behind him, Pence stepped up to a podium and addressed the small crowd assembled around him. It is great to be in West Texas the heart of an American energy renaissance, the Permian Basin. Yeah, it's really kind of upended everything because we're now in a position where we don't have to be at least as beholden to Middle East oil producers as we were in the past. The way business is done in the Permian has also changed forever. Gone are the days of wildcatters like David Arrington and his predecessors. Many of the younger, big-money guys are more akin to Silicon Valley tech bros. The young shellennials, as they've been called, are more like realtors and hedge fund capitalists than the old-school swashbuckling wildcatters relying on guts and grit to make their fortunes. Today, Arrington keeps an office in the Chase Building in downtown Midland, which overlooks the city's smattering of other tall buildings. His company, which takes up the fourth floor, looks more like an art gallery than an oil business. Massive black and white Ansel Adams prints line the walls and the floors gleam like polished marble. Arrington explained that his current boom is different from any he's seen in the past. He says that drilling for oil these days is more like a mining operation than the hit or miss crapshoot it used to be. Companies have been buying up as much land in the region as possible, knowing they can drill horizontally and get to oil one way or another. That mostly eliminates the risk of drilling a dry hole, and plenty of operators have been emboldened by this. I would have people come into my office and show me a deal, and I would explain to them why that was a little more risky and, and, and cost more money than I would be willing on doing. And, and then inevitably, it was a young person, and I would ask them if they've ever done a bad deal, and they look at me like, this old man's crazy. And, and I wish I had a speaker and a camera in the elevator, because I'm sure when they got in the elevator, they were laughing at me about, you know, that, that, that you know, crazy old man doesn't know what he's talking about. And most of the time, I was wrong and they were right. They made money on it and went down the road. It was bizarre. Because of the recent innovations in drilling, officials in the Permian like to say that busts are a thing of the past. But there are plenty of risks that have to be accounted for. 
We'll talk more about the shaky financial ground of the industry in a later episode, but the truth is, there's a lot more to the oil business than what's buried in the earth. And today, there are some signs that the hottest boom in history is beginning to cool off. Both independents and major oil companies have already slashed their spending budgets for the next year. Uh, so you're seeing the rigs being dropped, which means there's less work. So you know that means there's more pressure on all the service companies to uh, make up for their lost profit. I mean, some people are gonna get laid off. And so that really does make it difficult for the market in general. So there are a lot of people that spend a lot of money that, that are gonna actually lose. While technology may have decreased the risk of drilling a dry hole, there are still no guarantees in the oil business. And profits aside, there is of course increasing pressure to move away from fossil fuels. Renewable energy is increasingly competitive. It's possible that the world will turn its back on oil long before the last drop is sucked from the Permian. One truth that's held steady for nearly a hundred years is this. In the Permian, the next bust is always around the corner. Next week on Boomtown, a heartbreaking tragedy in the oil patch. And I heard banging on the door and then I heard my brother's voice. He's saying, um, they said there was an accident out there where Junior and them were, and it's not good. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, the rig exploded. Boomtown is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Texas Monthly. Executive producer is Jason Hope. Produced and engineered by Brian Standifer, who also wrote the score. Boomtown is edited by J.K. Nickel and Megan Kreit and co-reported by Leif Riegstad. Our theme song is written and performed by Paik Rossi. I'm your host and writer, Christian Wallace. Texas Monthly's parent company also owns interest in the midstream oil and gas industry among other diversified investments. Our editorial judgments are made independently of any such investments. Don't forget to tell your friends about Boomtown and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Boomtown is a 10-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on social media and visit texasmonthly.com boomtown for more on this story. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.